Uh, about 20 years ago, I was having this conversation with a senior citizen. And uh, somehow, some way, we got around to talking about our greatest fears. And I, I had told him, this was 20 years ago, I had told him, I think one of my greatest fears, and I was like 30 at the time, uh, was that I would never get married, and I would never have a family, that I would die single. And he goes, okay. But then he told me his greatest fear, and it was something I didn't expect to hear. And so it stuck with me, and, and it became a sermon illustration 20 years later. Um, he said, Eddie, my greatest fear is that no one will show up to my funeral. And then I, being the stupid person that I said, I said, that's so stupid. I told the senior citizen, you're dead. What do you care if no one shows up? You're dead. You won't even be there. Well, you will be there, but you won't be there. You know, so what does it matter to you? But then what I realized, you know, after I said that was after, you know, I really, he, he basically said, I, I get that, Eddie, but, um, you know, I just want to know that I made a difference with my life. And then if I did, then a lot of people would show up. And I said, oh. And so that what I realized, what this guy feared the most is not that no one will rock up to his funeral, but he feared living an insignificant life. He feared living a life that didn't impact others or make a difference in people's lives. And people showing up to your funeral is proof that you made a difference. You know, I know most of you guys are very young. I don't know if you think about your life yet in terms of its significance. You know, do you guys think that way? I want to live a significant life. I want to live a life that matters, that counts, or that's important. I think some of us are maybe, we're, maybe we're just busy trying to pass our classes. Maybe we're just busy trying not to get fired, especially in the environment, you know, these days. But as believers in Christ, I kind of always believe that you need to have some kind of post-life vision, that drives all that we do, right? If we were given this great gift of eternal life and to live eternally, then there has to be something eternal that drives everything that we do in the life that we're given here. And if receiving eternal life and worshiping Christ for eternity is not enough, which it should be, then hopefully our passage today can give you a little bit more inspiration to live eternally to do something truly eternal with your life. You know, in this chapter, we get a very long list of people, and hopefully by now we've learned that lists are good, right? Whenever you count a list, it's hard to read, yeah, and you pray to God that the pastor doesn't read the whole passage before the sermon, especially if it's a list. But once, hopefully by now you realize that lists are good. God puts, puts lists in the Bible for a reason. And most of the time, the reason why it does is because he wants many generations to remember and to recognize the men and women who have been faithful to him in the past. He wants these people recognized and remembered. These were the people who God deemed as significant. So much that he put them in scripture forever, right? And so today's list is no different. The list that we find here in Nehemiah 11 are the people that God honored. And I hope that this list will motivate us to live in a way that not only would honor him with our lives today, but hopefully will drive us to even desire future generations to be blessed as well. Uh, there are two reasons why God honored these people in the Bible today, and the first is this. The first reason why God honored these people in the Bible is because these people chose to live to build God's kingdom, okay? Verses 1 and 2 says this, Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, 
The rest of the people, though, cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, city while remaining while the remaining nine out of ten were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So let's let's context here. The temple's rebuilt, the city's rebuilt. God spent the previous two chapters rebuilding and rededicating the people. But now that that's all done, you know what everybody wanted to do? Everybody just wanted to go home. Everybody wanted to go back to their farms. Most of these guys were farmers. They just wanted to go back to their farms and start farming, start living their lives. That's it, right? Truthfully, nobody wanted to really live in Jerusalem, right? Because you can't farm in Jerusalem and you're a farmer, right? It's that, it's, that, it's that simple. Not only that, but, you know, people believe that it was a lot safer to be a farmer out in those cities or those villages way out there away from Jerusalem. And the reason why is if uh, uh, like a warring country wanted to topple the Israelites, guess where they're going to attack first? The city. So they knew that the city would get attacked first and smart them, they didn't want their families to die first in Jerusalem, right? They wanted to hear that their Jerusalem was being attacked so they could run, right? It's very, very simple why nobody wanted to stay in Jerusalem. But in order for a city to be uh, economically viable and defensible, people needed to live there. And so the priests, along with the leaders of Israel, did what they thought was most logical. And so what did they do? They initiated the draft. Okay, One out of every ten families will be randomly chosen by lot. And if you're chosen, you have to live in Jerusalem and start a new life here. And that's it. Right? And so what one verses 1 to 2 tell us is that there were people who were chosen by lot, which is a lottery. But there were also people who willingly volunteered to stay in Jerusalem. And the rest of this chapter, the list that you read, are these people who volunteered to stay in order to rebuild the city of God. Okay? Now, if I wasn't clear enough, there was no economical advantage or practical advantage for these farmers to stay in Jerusalem. So why would they volunteer then? Right? And the answer is very, very simple. It's because they just wanted to do what was on God's heart. That's it. There's no reason for them to stay. They can't farm there. They have to, there's a new, they have to like realize a new profession. They have to come up with a way to make money for their families. Right? There was no reason for them to stay. But the only reason why some people volunteered their families to stay in Jerusalem was because they knew that this was where God's heart was. He wanted his people to be here. So These people, they may not have had the skills or the know-how to live and thrive in Jerusalem, but the only thing that would have motivated them is what? Faith. They would have trusted that even though they have no skills to like start a new business or to do whatever it takes to live in Jerusalem, they trusted that God would provide for them, right? The positive, however, and probably the things that they told their children is this. Hey, man, if we stay in Jerusalem... You know one thing we get to see that we would never see if we were out in the countryside? The one thing that we'll get to see is the increasing worship of God and the presence of God at the temple. And that's what we talked about last week, right? And so that's the one thing that really excited them. So if you think about it, what motivated you to volunteer to stay in Jerusalem? The only thing that would have motivated you to stay in Jerusalem was to be, number one, be where God, you knew God was so that you could see it, so that your kids could see it and be a part of it, 
And secondly, you knew that God wanted people there. And you were willing to risk your family, your family's safety, in order for you to be where God wanted people to be, and in order for you to be where God was, right? And those are the only things that were motivating you. And the thing is, when these people chose to do that, God's heart melted, right? I believe the moment they were chosen was the moment that God started writing, this is the romantic in me, that he he sat down and started writing these names, right? That's why we read them today. These list of people who are after God's heart. And and if we understand that concept, then I believe the same is exactly true for people today because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is waiting and God is always willing to honor those who will choose to live to build his kingdom, to do what's on his heart, even at the sake of no matter what circumstances are going around us, even though it's unsafe or even though it's even though you may not have the skills or the know-how, if you truly believe that this is what God wants you to do with your life, then you will just do it because you trust in God. And whenever God sees that, I truly believe his heart goes out to people like that. His heart melts. And he starts to write down, you know, you can't write, wait to write your name and honor you and to honor your family. I was at a very cool seminar once in my life. And it was a seminar of a Christian worker. And he was giving a seminar. It was entitled, How to Honor God with Your Work, right? And I just thought as a budding pastor, I should learn how to help workers honor God with their work. So I attended the seminar. And honestly, I think it's the best seminar I've ever been to in my whole life. I'll just be very frank with you. It truly was. More than the teaching, and there's the reason why, I was so amazed at this man. Because this is a man who truly loved God. You know, he was an accountant, and he he loved accounting. So you know that's from God, because accounting sucks, and accounting is boring. And anyone who's in that field, sorry if you're an accountant, you know, that's from God. Anyway... This, his story was, he became a Christian right before uni, and he studied accounting because that's what he chose when he, went into, when he went into uni. And all throughout uni, he didn't know if accounting was God's will for his life or not, but he simply got a job because that was what he studied. But he never knew if that was what God wanted him to do. Anyway, so after he graduated uh, uni, he went to one of the top firms, top accounting firms in Sydney, and you know he worked for a few years when all of a sudden... Throughout those few years, as he was growing in Christ, God, he felt like God was constantly challenging his heart and his whole life about, you know, are you really living eternally? Are you living, really living your life for God and his glory? Are you doing everything that you can? And then all of a sudden he came to this conclusion, wow, I don't think I am. So therefore, he decided to do one of those metaphorical things where he, you kind of give God a blank piece of paper and say, God, you know, whatever you want me to do, write down on this piece of paper whatever you want me to do, and I'll just do it. And so, you know, he does that, and he spends the next, like, few, like, weeks praying and fasting. And to his shock and surprise, he felt like God was calling him to accounting, right? And so, but he said it was radically different. And the thing is, he said, this time it was so different because now that I know that God is calling me to be an accountant, He said every day he would spend time planning and strategizing and praying. Now that he knew that this was his calling. And 
Every day, he came up with this three-pronged strategy to reach his place of employment, employment with the gospel of Jesus. He said that he was going to bless people through his work, he was going to bless people through his prayer, and he was going to bless people through his love. Everything he did, every interaction he had was covered in prayer, and everything that he did had this mindset to show off Christ to love people into the kingdom. Because of that, many people in his workplace came to Christ. He got to disciple them into maturity, and then he got to introduce them to so many different churches. And through him bringing people to Christ, he got to meet all these churches, network with all these churches, and he became like this discipler. And obviously now he gives seminars, right? It's absolutely amazing. Simply because he felt called, that's what he did. But what, once again, what bowled me over wasn't that story itself, but it was the man. It was obvious that this man just loved God. To him, it didn't matter what location God called him to. It didn't matter what occupation he had to do. He was willing to do anything because the most important thing to him was God himself. And because you know, and we knew that because even before he was going to do whatever he was going to do, he was already fully surrendered. And that was the most beautiful part about this man. And I believe that whenever God finds a man, it wasn't the accounting thing or it wasn't the strategy, but whenever God finds a person who is absolutely fully surrendered to him and just wants to honor him and to do his will, God will bless that person. God will use that person. God will bring true eternal significance through that person's life. So the question, obviously, that we need to ask ourselves is, what's most important to you right now, right? Is it to be part of the 10% where God is? People who are willing to live out whatever God wants them to do, regardless of the circumstances. Or do you kind of just want to be part of the 90% that we read in our passage today? People who just want to go back to knowing what they would know how to do really well, Knowing what the, you know, knowing what's familiar, knowing what's comfortable, no surprises, I'm in full control. Which will you choose? The whole point of today's message is very simple. I want to personally ask you never to consider being part of the 90% ever in your life. Don't ever even consider it. Don't ever be considered being part of the 90% that just wants to do everything where you're in full control, where you got everything planned, where everything's under your control, and you're not asking God and you're not fully surrendered. Be part of the 10% because it's this 10% that God will use in honor. And that's what I want for each one of you. That's it, right? It doesn't matter what you do with your life, what it is God's calling you to, that occupation, location, none of those things matter. What matters is if you're fully surrendered. And I called it the 10%. You know, I'm going to call that the 10% in our passage today. That's why this chapter is here. I believe that's why Nehemiah 11 exists. It's to highlight the 10%. And what it's doing for us generations later, it's saying God loves, loves honoring those who choose to be fully surrendered to him. That's the rebuild. That's the true rebuild. After the revival, after the rebuild of the people, now that everyone was going to go back to quote-unquote normal life, we get Nehemiah 11 because God wants people to live with the desire to do what's on God's heart and to be where he is. That's it. That's what the holy city represents. Okay? And that's who he wants us to be. You know, in this, in this chapter, there are three times that God places a label on these volunteers. Okay? It's verse 6, verse 8, and verse 14. I don't like the NIV once again because the title that he gives them, the label that he gives them is called, uh, he says, men of standing. I don't like that. But if you read the S ESV, it says he called them 
valiant, right? These people were valiant. Or he also says these people were mighty men of valor, right? Uh, Valor or being valiant simply means being courageous. And I find that very interesting that God would call people valiant or God would call people courageous because God fears nothing, right? There's never any reason for God himself to be valiant. But the fact that he recognizes that these people were valiant means what? That it must have taken a lot of courage for these guys to choose against what was familiar. That it, must, that it took a lot of courage and valiance for these guys to choose against what they did. They had no skills, no know-how. They had no future. They don't even know what tomorrow's going to hold. How are they going to feed their kids tomorrow? It must have taken a lot of courage. And God recognized that in these people for them to choose this pathway. But the only reason why they did was what? Because they wanted to trust in God and be where God was and to be where his heart was for their lives. And the fact that he was calling them valiant not only means that he recognizes how difficult a decision that must have been, but that his heart goes out to to them powerfully. And the thing is this, when God sees that people who are choosing to live for him are choosing to struggle, are choosing to live by faith, what do you think God's going to do to people who he recognizes as valiant? Do you think he's going to abandon them? Do you think he's going to be like, ha ha, oh, let's see how it goes? No. If there's anyone that God is going to choose to be generous to, loving and gracious, it's to the valiant. It's to the 10%. God loves being Around that, right? There are verses. I'll just I'll just sum up all these verses in a statement. It says, God knows all that we go through, and he sympathizes us in our weaknesses and gives grace to us in all of our struggles. That's like five, seven verses summed up in one sentence. And maybe the greatest promise here that we read in this chapter is that he chooses to be close to those who choose to live out the absolute struggle to live for God. Because it is a struggle, and it is difficult, and it is challenging, and every day your faith is going to be challenged. But in other words, God chooses to be close to those who choose him. And I want you to be that guy. Those people, right? If there's anything that I want for you and your family, it is this. I want you to walk in the confidence that he is with you. I want you to walk in the confidence that he has your back. And the reason why he does, and we can be confident of that, is because we are choosing to live as the 10%. We are choosing to live as the valiant. We are choosing to live fully surrendered to him. And because of that, we can have that confidence, not only because he, that he will be close to us in this life, but that he'll bless many generations to come as a result of that decision that we make in this life. How do we know that? We'll see much clearer. In the next point, okay, the next point is this. You know, first is, for those who live to build his kingdom. Secondly, God honors those that bank on his promises. Um, Verses 4 to 24 is what I wanted to use, but I'm not going to read that whole thing again because it's the list. But what's important in these verses, the list, when you look at the whole list, what's important in these verses is not only who's included in the list, but maybe more significantly, it's who's been excluded from the list. That tells the story, right? Uh, Who's been included are this. There are three groups of people that were included in the list. The priests, people from the tribe of Judah, and people from the tribe of Benjamin, okay? These These are the people that made up the southern kingdom of Israel, if you know your Israelite history. So the people that have been excluded 
with the ten tribes from the northern kingdom of Israel. So the two questions that need to be answered are, Eddie, what is this whole northern kingdom, southern kingdom stuff? We'll answer that. And secondly, why were the ten tribes of the northern kingdom excluded from the list? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hope that the following history lesson will answer both of those questions for you. Here we go. God made this promise to King David called the Davidic Covenant. Okay, God made this promise to King David that all that uh, through his lineage, God's kingdom would reign forever. That's it. Okay, and obviously we get that through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. David, however, uh, had a son named Solomon who became king of Israel. And then, this is when Israel was one. And then Solomon had a son named Rehoboam, okay, who also became the king of Israel. However, during Rehoboam's reign, there was a dude named Jeroboam who said, I don't like him. I want to become king and rebelled. And there was like this coup d'etat, you know, and said, let's take down Rehoboam. And so all of a sudden, there's this fight that happened between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And at the end of the day, Rehoboam and the two, and the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin created the southern kingdom called Judah, while Jeroboam took the ten tribes, the other ten tribes, and created the northern kingdom called Israel. So Israel and Judah. So we call that the divided kingdom. Right? Israel became divided into north and south, ten tribes up there, two in the south, Judah and Benjamin. Then what you need to realize is if you were Judah and Benjamin at the time, it must have been a very difficult thing because all the cool tribes are going to the north. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I'm sure they were like, dude, why, come you got, why don't you just follow? What does Rehoboam have that Jeroboam doesn't? But the thing is, the reason why Judah and Benjamin stayed is not because Rehoboam was cooler, or it's not because he offered so much more than Jeroboam. But the only reason why they decided to stay is because of God's promise to David. He knew that the line would be going through David, and Jeroboam wasn't a part of it. And they wanted to be faithful to God. So they stay with David's line. Do you guys get that? Is that cool? So they chose the southern kingdom because they were banking their lives and their future on God's promise to David. So therefore, because of that promise, they chose God. And because they chose and honored God's promise over everything, especially during that time of great instability, what happens? God now, hundreds of years later, generations later, honors them and their faithfulness by building this new Jerusalem, this new holy city around them and not the other ten tribes. Isn't that cool? That's the list, right? God honors those. What does that teach us? God honors those who trust him and who trust in his promises. God honors people who live their lives obeying scripture, banking their hearts, banking their lives on the promises of God, even though every circumstance around them tells them not to. They, God loves honoring those who bank upon him. Right? He honors those who honor him. And in today's passage, God not only honors those 
who honor him with his life, with their lives right now, but he honors future generations. That's what we're learning. God is a God who honors future generations of those who are faithful today. How do we know that? Exodus 20, 4 to 6. We're going to go back to the Ten Commandments. This is the number two commandment. I don't know if you ever noticed this. It was part of one of the songs today. But let's read Exodus 24 to 6. It says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or anything on earth beneath or in the waters below, right? We usually stop there, but guess what? There's more. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here we go. Punishing the children of the, for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But here we go. It's verse 6. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Did you know that verse was in there? Right? Second commandment in Exodus. What is it saying? It's saying that he'll curse those who hate him to the third and fourth generation. That's long. That's like 150 years, man. That's long. But what does what he say? But he'll bless those who are faithful and obedient to a thousand generations. I can't even, that's like forever. That's basically what it's saying. You know what I'm saying? God remembers and honors those who stick it out, those who live by faith, those who bank on his promises, especially in the midst of a culture and a world that doesn't. Living as the 10% today in Australia is becoming a lot harder. Every single day, every single year, it's becoming a lot harder in this world, right? Not only do we have to contend to an adversarial culture who is against Christianity, who is against God and his values, but the sheer number of Christians are declining in this country. The, the, the results of the census came out just recently. Did you guys notice the number of people who are taking Christian? It dropped from, from 61% to 44% in our country in the past 10 years. Is that huge? That's a huge drop, 61% to 44%. The number of Christians is rapidly declining in our country. Denominations are dying. Churches are dying in our country, right? All to say what? I'll say it's becoming a lot harder to live as a faithful Christian in our society today. So rather than trying to preach too much on this, let me just end my message by reading a passage from another 11th chapter, and hopefully it'll really inspire you. It comes from Hebrews 11, and I just want to read a few verses. Verses 1 and 2 say, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for, honored for. Verses 13 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They banked on them, but they didn't receive them in their lives. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. Why do I read that? I read that because these are the 10%. These people are the, were the 10%, lived as the 10%. You know what I'm saying? It says that their hearts had no confidence in this world. Their hearts were always longing for their eternal home 
in heaven. Even though they banked their whole lives on promises, the promises of God, they never saw them, but they didn't care because their hearts were with God and they were always with God every single day. And that's what mattered to them. And because they lived every single day in faith, in confidence of he who is always with them, God honored them. And not only them, but future generations as well. They never saw the fruit of God's promises within their life. But you know, there's a difference between those guys and us. We have a very clear, distinct advantage. Those guys never knew Jesus personally, but we do. You know, that's the huge advantage we have. We have Jesus Christ within our hearts. We have his promises within our hearts. We have the Holy Spirit within our souls. And as we do, I hope and pray that every single day, as we commune with Jesus, that he will be enough for us to live faithfully for him, to bank upon all of his promises and to be part of the 10%, to constantly want to be fully surrendered to him so that we can always be where he wants us to be, so we can always be who he wants us to be, and we can always be all that he wants us to be. And I hope that he continually is enough to motivate you to invest yourself fully in all that he wants you to do, especially in this world where it's so unpopular to live as he wants us to live. It takes valiance. It takes courage. But God honors that. Beauty, that's the most beautiful part of Nehemiah 11. God may have built Jerusalem around two faithful tribes in our passage today, but if you live for him, Hebrew says that he's going to build the new Jerusalem around us. Why? Because God honors those who build his kingdom and bank on his promises. Today I'm asking you to be part of the 10%, not just for yourself and your current family, but for your future generations. And I pray that that's your desire, and as a result, you'll choose to live a life that causes God to make you have, to make you someone who has eternal significance in this world. Let's pray. Just like I shared before, I always feel like Nehemiah is a, a book of rebuilding. I feel like we're always in this, a state of rebuilding after COVID. And there's a lot of things that we're trying to, things that we lost that we're trying to get back. Things that we realize that we'll never get back and we're, we're forced to look ahead. But the greatest part of all this is that there's one thing that never changes and that's God and his commitment to us. He is for us which is awesome. But just like these Israelites, as God rebuilds them, the promise he gives is that if you live faithfully, if you live part of the 10%, if you live fully surrendered to me and to truly be my people, I will always honor you, not just you and your family now, but future generations. If you would only live fully surrendered to me. Being fully surrendered to me is a huge part of the rebuilding process. Maybe you had a great time at the camp. Maybe you're finally getting your your feet back on the right track after COVID. Maybe you finally realize this is the direction you want to go. Can I just ask you, regardless of how confident you might be and where your feet are today, Are you standing where the 10% stand? Fully confident in God and living your life, banking upon his promises, wanting to make him great, wanting to make Jesus great with your life, especially in the midst of this unpopular world. 
It's a big decision. But there's always big decisions to make in a rebuilding era. But this is kind of bigger because generations could be at stake as well. I want that for you. I want that for your future family. I want those I want that for your future generations and so does God. So consider carefully what you choose. I hope that you choose Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you, God, for salvation. We thank you for this eternal love that all of us know, that all of us get to celebrate every single day of our lives. We thank you, God, that your grace covers us, your forgiveness covers us, your goodness is totally saturating our lives, and we praise you and we thank you for it. And we thank you for chapters like this because it challenges us to truly live for Christ, to examine what we do, to examine what our lives are really about. And if we're truly living eternally for things that matter, for things that count, for things that are upon your heart and not upon mine or ours. And Father, we need that. God, we always want to run towards environments that are easier, that we're familiar with, that we can control. But God, we know and we understand after this whole book and even Ezra and Nehemiah that regardless of what their circumstances are, the only place to be is with you. So God, give us the courage, the valiance to only be, want to be with you and let nothing else come number two. And whatever that means for us, Lord, we, we want to do that because we know that when we're in your hands, not only are we in the safest place we can be, but God, we're at a place where you're going to use us eternally. Father, where you'll be made greater. Where we're, we'll know that you're that much closer. Father, where we're always empowered by your heart and your presence and your love and your commitment to us and we'll know it. And there is nothing greater than that for us. So, Father, as we continue to rebuild our lives and our faith post-COVID, help us to never get confused as to what is primary. And that is you and being with you and making you great in our lives, especially in the midst of this challenging environment of Australia. 
It's so hard to be a Christian here. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Fill us with your spirit that we might be bold. Bold witnesses for Christ. Proud witnesses for Jesus. And Father, we pray, use our joy and pride in you to impact many for your glory. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.